0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the generational clash. I'm your host, the son.
1: And I'm the co host, the father.
0: So today we're going to talk about a very interesting topic. You know, now that we're only less than a month away from the election, there's kind of like a cultural divide in in the United States going on right now. So that'd be an interesting theme or topic to kind of discuss between multi-generational people and especially between a father and a son. So let's get started. So my first question to you would be, how do you think we got to this point where the country, my opinion, you know based on social media and based on what you're seeing from the news, right? especially the traditional legacy news outlets, you're seeing a complete divide between you know, the left and the right. And I think that one of the things that always held America together was this ability to kind of, you know, accept the other half, right? And now you're seeing no acceptance from either party, either people supporting each political party. So how do you think we got to this, to this place in time where we're just so divided as a nation?
1: Uh, the answer that I'll give you is, is too prone. Uh, if we go historically, backwards. Uh, I like to think uh, about Alexander de Tocqueville, the French writer and diplomat that was here in the uh, early part of the 19th century. And he wrote this phenomenal book called Democracy in America. And basically in that book, he describes his travels around the country through several months by train. And It is a book that is extremely positive about American society. And in a way, uh, he was uh, predicting uh, the the phenomenal success that came with the Industrial Revolution decades later and formation of some of the phenomenal companies that uh, were created in the latter part of the 19th century and so on. Uh, He basically was amazed by some of the American, uh, you know, costumes and traditions and ingenuity. Of his people, the Sunday cookouts, the, the church goings, and he went to small towns and he uh, uh, again uh, had a, an, an incredible experience in, in seeing a society in the new world uh, being created. Uh, one of the areas that where he was critical was the criminal justice system. So, what,
0: what year was this, by the way?
1: This is in the uh, what year? What year
0: was this guy alive, and what year was he prominent?
1: This is in the you know just preceding the Lincoln. The Abraham Lincoln so, so Times, the, the, the late, earlier part of the 19th century.
0: So the 1900s, the early 1900s, yes. late
1: 1800s. Yeah, 1930s, 1940s. And he was, uh, what he was critical was in the uh, justice system. And um, it's ironic because um, hundreds of years later, after the September 11 attacks, a Frenchman, uh, again, a journalist, came and retraced the, the tocqueville 's route. And the book, again, was highly positive. American friends were enjoying a honeymoon at that time. But again, he he was highly critical of the American justice system where he found uh, basically that things had not changed since the Tocqueville. So we uh, are set uh, from a historical point of view on a path where this divide has been there for a long time this uh, extremely harsh, barbaric, if you want, uh, criminal justice system is not 20, 30 years old. It, it comes right from, from, from those times of the Wild West where small towns had to fend by themselves. So, so that's one aspect. It means that there are fissures, there are cracks in our society that go all the way back to the early uh, years of, of, the, of the nation. Then if we come back to the present, In earlier conversations, I was telling you that we have to go um, to the 1970s and the Vietnam War to see this, you know, what was then a generational clash and basically a a rebellion by by the young uh, people of America against being sent to war. Right now, we are at a boiling point, but at a boiling point because, yes, you have two sides. Uh, in in, in two extremes they're not talking to each other and the rubber band uh, at some point in time uh, can snap but the good news is that sometimes societies have to go through these uh, periods of friction uh, even conflict in order for the paradigm I mean the established truth the accepted truth of the moment to be renewed or broken
0: so what are your thoughts on, cause this is this, I, I feel like this just exacerbates the situation, or the historical situation that we're in today, which is how do you feel about the legacy news outlets start from going from, you know, being relatively politically neutral to now publishing, you know, uh, editorials as, as, as opinions, right? I feel like that's contributed a lot to, and especially you know, if you're talking about the mainstream media, like for example, like outlets like the New York Times, which has this amazing reputation that's that's over a century old, and CNN and you know these traditional news outlets, they've just become they've become left wing Fox News apparently, and I don't think that's good. I think that you know, and, and CNN still and the New York Times as well, they 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 uh, market themselves as you know reliable sources of news but what you're starting to see is you're starting to see a lot of opinions as news and i think that hurts the country i think it hurts both sides and what are your thoughts on that
1: there is no question that journalism as a whole is under fire as, so press, as,
0: at, as uh, under fire as in from the outside or as mm-hmm. under fire as in from the inside in,
1: in every aspect i mean you just mentioned one aspect of it as truly concerning when when editorials become politicized but i'm more concerned about the truth Uh, it has become extremely difficult for the average citizen the layperson, to discern when the news that that are present are being presented to him or to her are have any basis of 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 reality the world where where i grew up where Articles and white papers and studies were researched, were vetted, and were verifiable. Uh, it's become, I, I would say, for the, for the layperson, extremely uh, difficult. Therefore, you have uh, groups of people, um, you, you can compare this in, in, in certain ways to the fa- fastest times of, of the 1940s, 50s, 30s, where basically masses were mesmerized by individuals that were in reality shallow and without any uh, deep uh, message or ideology, but they were able to enchant, uh, you know, and, and and convince the masses like the old sophists of uh, Greece, and then convince them to the contrary, literally the next day. So uh, it is become very difficult to... Uh, see what the truth is and in my case as you've seen it um every time I read anything uh, I go and verify it I go and research it and verify it and look for the data look for the source of information and when it comes to stats and so on I go to the um commonly accepted or or legitimate sources of data in order to to ascertain what the truth is
0: so what
1: do you think Cause this inevitable, uh,
0: what do you think caused this? What do you think, co- what do you think caused for us to end up, you know, in the situation where journalists have decided to kind of throw away, you know, basic things that they teach you at journalism school? You know, what do you think caused this? So I- I'm coming from the perspective and, you know, I- I'm curious to hear your perspective that Basically, the internet is doing the same thing to journalism that the internet has done to every single industry, right? So not only do these companies that previously had to deliver the news, now all of a sudden there's a new kid on the block. Now all of a sudden they have to compete, right? So instead of, you know, making investigative, instead of making, you know, your traditional investigative journalism, they've basically had to rely on clickbait. Right, they've had to create this this extreme narrative where it gets people to click, it gets people to read, right? And now they're having to compete with people because now anybody that can open a Twitter account, anybody that can just make an account on Medium can now be a journalist, right? So I'm coming from the from the thought that man, these that they're having competition, and that this is their only way to keep up with the times. And I think that the internet's going to do to journalism, the same thing the internet has done to everything, disintermediate the hell out of it. And I think now we're going through this, this, this era right now that I'm kind of, I'm going to use the the LimeWire Napster analogy where it's gone way too far to one extreme. And now you're, you're not, you you still haven't seen what's going to come out of it. So what resulted from, you know, the internet and the music industry was you've, you had these services where all of a sudden you just get all this free music. And then the record companies reacted all the way to the right and said, no, that's not going to happen. They sued. They spent a lot of money on lawsuits. I think they put the, one of the founders of LimeWire in jail, but nothing resulted from that. And what, what ended up being born from that was services like Spotify and iTunes, right? That they service, you know they they did they had the same functionalities as as Limewire and and Napster but you'd have to pay but you would pay for the ux you would pay for the ui you would pay for the experience of having all your music condensed in a simple app rather than having to download them one by one and going from the risks of downloading a virus right so i see what's going on right now is that the internet through twitter through youtube is disintermediating the traditional legacy news outlets it's destroying them one by one and mm-hmm. I think that what they're doing now isn't sustainable mm-hmm. and I think that there'll be a reckoning mm-hmm. on the traditional news media mm-hmm. um I don't know what the outcome of that is but I think that a lot of people are caught in the crossfire, crosshairs and that's unfortunate and the crossfire
1: the disintermediation subject is fascinating and we should uh, dedicate one complete uh, session to, to that. And, and I'm all for it. I mean, when you talk about Napster, Napster is the uh, precursor of all these platforms that we see today, like Uber um, and, and, and Grubhub, where you're connecting the consumer to individuals that have man hours available, and uh, you're disintermediating all structures. And, and the Napster model is peer-to-peer. It's being applied everywhere. But when we talk about information, I'd like to make another historical analogy. There was a Spanish writer called Ortega Gasset who wrote a a phenomenal book in the early part of the 20th century called The Rebellion of the Masses. And we're like in The Rebellion of Masses uh, Redux or Part Two, because that book had to do a little bit with uh, the fact that uh, through centuries, uh, most of the people in the world were illiterate, right? They didn't know how to write, they didn't know how to read, they were in the hands of of monarchs and you know in the early part of the 20th century he basically was pointed out that, that all that veil of darkness was being lifted and a lot of people was now having access to information and and books and and culture and knowledge uh, in, in, in today's world I would say that you have another rebellion of the masses but what I see is that information is being packaged is being canned into a, basically uh, snippets and and things that can be glanced at in a few seconds and and with that along with that and the need to generate money out of it, you are burying the truth or you're burying knowledge into you know slogans and uh, and short phrases and then you see people reciting things and you want to jump out of a window because you say what i mean the, the, basically there is no academic background uh no factual basis and when you mix that with politics, then you have uh, the recan and or the repackaging of, of ideologies. Uh, and and then you see people reciting pretty much like in the 1940s, uh, you have like an army of people repeating things that they don't even know what they mean, or they don't even know if they are true. So uh, I think that, that you're right, that, 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 the the internet and the disintermediation is challenging the old publishing industry. My issue is, uh, is the new uh, paradigm, the new wave of uh, news outlets going to work with the standards, uh, the publishing standards and the editorial standards that we had in the past. Right now, everything is tainted. We have these two sides clashing. Uh, They are basically, each one wants to prevail as I said in another conversation, none of the two is representing the actual needs and aspirations of the American people. Uh, one, because it's a system that is obsolete and doesn't work, socialism. And the other one, because it does not understand that capitalism, without talking about socialism, has to be revisited and reinvented again.
0: So l- let's talk a little bit more about, then we're, we'll go into... Uh, basically modern economic theory and capitalism let's talk a little bit about you know and and you mentioned ideologies a little bit let's talk a little bit about why you you've seen this new this resurgence of this new type so i this new type of what we referred to as neo-marxism right this this modern form of and you see a lot of people a lot of young people uh, especially in my generation, with you know, with the rise of this new protest of of Black Lives Matter, with the with the death of George Floyd, um, you see the, the the Black Lives Matter organization. They 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 come out as as trained quote to quote the founder as trained Marxist. Why do you think that's such an attractive ideology when time and time again it has proven to be an epic failure of not only economic proportions but of social proportions as well. It's resulted in over a hundred million deaths, more than more deaths than that resulted in, than from the, the right-wing form, which is fascism.
1: If we go way back to the Karlsmark years and you see the original notions of um, Marxism, the, the roots were based on problems that are similar today. The problem is that the implementation of that ideology okay, uh, has been a disaster. Uh, first of all, the premise that society can operate without profit, we've seen that it doesn't work. The premise that then you have to take from a few to give to the others as opposed to everybody working and earning, it doesn't work. The, uh, Expand uh, a
0: little bit on that. What do you mean by it doesn't work? Because a lot of people are going to be like, what do you mean it doesn't well, work? Or they're the, going to have criticisms. The, that. What parts
1: don't work?
0: Let me back up. Why, why do people need profit? Why does a society need profit?
1: The uh, profit is the the greatest incentive from a materialistic point of view for people to work, for businessmen to take risks, for financiers to provide financing, and then profits move everything uh, in in society uh, from an economic point of view. Why? Because with profits, people save, people spend, um, businesses invest, banks lend. So where do you think Marx got it wrong? I don't think that he got it wrong. I think that when the, the, the ideology went into uh, practice, okay, then the, the implementation became these uh, states that wanted to own everything. Because the original principle was society owns the means of production. Well, that doesn't work. Because the collective society per se doesn't have a sense of profit or profitability. When that ideology went into being implemented, then these governments became, oh, no, 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 the means of production in the hands hands of society means in the hands of government. That doesn't work either. In Europe, we have uh, social democracies, and and today people is confusing the original ideology, uh, uh, basically means of production in the hands of society, the implementation of it in form of government with totalitarian systems, with the means of production in the, in, the, in, in the hands of the government, with authentic democracies where there are certain social, socially minded policies.
0: Well, well, those, but those are cap Those are market societies. Those are capitalistic Absolutely. societies. And yet you have you with have, social programs. Correct. Those but are not socialistic societies.
1: Right. democratic socialistic societies. Yes, they, they I are. mean that's the that's the new term for it. But those are
0: capitalist societies with social programs. When
1: you have medicine that is being available for everyone and an and education that's see, available I, for I everyone. See, the thing
0: is, I don't agree. I, that's I, a
1: form of socialism. I, I
0: don't agree with the medicine because if you look at the United States and even per, per, per population size, if you look at the amount of, of, of breakthrough, medical breakthroughs that are coming out mm-hmm. per country, U.S. Is, is 11 times the nearest country. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's partly because we have a private the, medical industry.
1: L- let me tell you, uh, we are in agreement on this. I, I don't believe that uh, the European societies are competitive or vibrant. They don't have this uh, tick that has the, the, uh, the Chinese society, for example, or the American society in terms of, of entrepreneurial risks and, 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 and innovation because, because of this. Because when you start giving things away for free to people, the, the, a lot of incentives are lost, but watch out careful because when I say that capitalism has to revisit, be revisited, this is what I mean by that. W- there is a very interesting graph that so, I,
0: Wait, let's, let's back up mm-hmm. and cause we're going to talk about capitalism a little bit and what your thoughts are on what needs to change in American capitalism. But let's back up a little bit. The original question was why do you think that Marxism is so, uh, it's it's so it's so it's so widely adopted by the the current generation. My, my age group, the millennials. I think
1: the two extremes of American political views right now are uh, basically in, under an illusion. Uh, in, in in the Marxist side or the extreme left, as I repeat, socialism has worked. Production- but, but why do you
0: think that that? Why they do you have think an it's idea. so rampant? Why do you think in my yeah. age group, my generation yes. are buying into people like Bernie Sanders or buying into people like AOC? Yes. I, you know, It doesn't take a rocket scientist for me to be like, those are terrible ideas.
1: Well, let me tell you something. Sometimes you need to take a complex problem and look at it in a simple way. I was going to talk to you just a couple of minutes ago about a curve. There is a very interesting curve that shows... Uh, All the nations of the world, they are in different spots of this curve, and this curve measures two variables. It measures lack of social mobility and the um, uh, inequality from a point of view of um, uh, the different economic classes. And uh, lack of social mobility, meaning that, for example, in America, if you're born poor, 70% chance you're not gonna leave that status. And then um, social inequality, uh, basically measuring uh, how is the accumulation of wealth taking place. And I want to tell you son, do not hear my words with even a inch or a trace of socialism I told you in previous conversations, I'm not on that school of thought. I do not like socialism, in in the way it was, it has been implemented. It's proven to be an obsolete system. So this is a comment that is directly challenging and trying to improve capitalism as it is today. So we, the U.S., are at the top of that curve, meaning that we have that combination of lack of social mobility and an increasing, even you can say extreme social inequality in, on comparative terms to, you know, decades earlier. We were given the example of how a young man like you in the early 60s was able to purchase his own home and today you cannot. Why is that possible if our GDP, our gross domestic product, our revenues as a country have increased so much and we have our prosperity, you know, has skyrocketed. And what has happened that you cannot do that today? Well, think about those two terms. If you have a combination around the entire country where a significant segment of population has a problem to move from a social perspective, lack of mobility, boom, there's our ceiling. You know, there are invisible walls stopping them, okay? And then at the same time, you have growing inequality, which I already talked about. When you do the two things, that's an explosive cocktail, meaning that capitalism cannot turn a blind eye on what's happening because you have then people reverting to believing on falsehoods, believing in illusions. They basically say, yeah, Marxism, like a magic wand, is going to create equality in the country. And Marxism is going to break social, the, the, the barriers of social mobility. False. The issue is, what does need to take place in capitalism to deal with those matters? And I was trying to tell you that, if, for example, you're a large corporation like Microsoft or Google, in, um, you know, in, one in, in, in the Seattle area, the other one in, in Silicon Valley. Okay, your employees are having problems affording their housing. Your employees are having problems financing for the education of their kids. Your employees are having problems affording their health care. That's the largest cause of bankruptcy for families and individuals here. That's a reality. Let's not talk about ideology, party A or party B. The largest cause of bankruptcy in in the U.S. for families are their in their uh, healthcare bills, their hospital bills. So gentlemen of Microsoft, gentlemen of Google, and now let's take MIT, let's take Harvard, let's take you know the, the largest universities in this country, you know the best acad- academics and scientists, let's analyze this issue and come up with solutions. This country is been so innovative in creating solutions for anything almost. Anything you see around in the developed world, in terms of comfort, of living, has been invented in this country. Okay, what are the solutions that can be implemented without talking about socialism, okay? But from the point of view of capitalism, okay, where from the point of view that profits should, be always, should always be the north, the engine that is moving the economy. I start with productivity, really, you know, efficiencies that turn into more profits. Uh, without basically hurting that by force, okay? What should those companies that have enormous resources be doing to find solutions for their people to attend those? And I'm just giving an example because I think that the issues of education, the issues of healthcare, uh, and, and, uh, are, and, and the issues of people that are unemployed by no uh, cost of their own, uh, maybe by sickness, maybe by, you know, situations that happen in life, okay? So uh, on on issues of employment and then retirement, both for veterans and all people, okay? Society has to deal with those issues, cannot ignore them. The people that has pre-existing conditions here cannot be thrown out of the bus. And the argument back when somebody says that cannot be, Oh, you're a socialist. No, 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 no. Absolutely. In, in, in my case, as you know, son, I'm an entrepreneur. And I build companies. And I believe in the notion of profit. So when you want to explain and understand some of the clashes that we're having now, I say that the fundamental issue is that the current political parties do not represent or reflect the needs of the people, and that's where you see two groups, each one defending their own needs uh, on an extreme basis. And you see the rubber band being, you know, uh, getting tenser and tenser and tenser to a potential. Clash.
0: So I see that as a result, what you're talking about, I kind of see that as, you know, the the Washington establishment, right? What what do I mean by that? I mean by the Pelosi's, the Obama's, and then on the other side, I mean it by the Mitt Romney's, the Ted Cruz, the Marco Rubio's, right? And I completely agree. and And I think that the result of, you know, the establishment, the political establishment, being so out of tune with the American people, it was basically resulted in the election of someone that you would never think would get elected president, which is Donald Trump, a reality TV star, right? And I think that the desperation of a lot of people in this country um, basically resulted in this freak election where someone from without the establishment, with someone from the outside of the establishment just came in like a wrecking ball and completely, or a majority of the establishment Republican party, it just completely destroyed it. And you're seeing what I'm seeing a lot is, is part of this, 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 this media backlash, right? I'm seeing, a, I'm seeing the establishment democratic party, right? Doing everything in its political power, you know, whether using impeachment on a, on a partisan basis or whether it's using its connections in the press and the media, to do everything in its power to get the power back into the establishment's hands, right? So I don't think that the old establishment will survive this election cycle. I think that the new Democratic Party is heading towards what you what you referred to as earlier as, as the new Democratic Socialist Party of, of the United States. And I see the Republican Party being kind of it's 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 taking in a lot of people that were disenfranchised um that were in the center that were in the middle that are now taking in uh people that were just left out in the cold all of a sudden that don't relate to democratic socialists but also don't relate to a lot of the old republican ideals that were complete that are completely have been completely proven false like pro-life and all these things that, you know, they, they don't make sense in a modern society, right? You know, ultra-religious, ultra-religion in, 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 uh, in government as well. I don't think that, I think that what you're seeing now with, with a lot, of, with, with the election of Trump is that you're seeing a lot of people that would not normally be Republicans voting Republican because of what happened with Trump. The Trump, you know, the, the, the Trumpism, like, is being coined.
1: Um, I think that uh, the President Obama election and then re-election and Mm -hmm. President Trump's election and now potential re-election reflect part of the clash that we're talking about, reflect a segment of the population that is unhappy and one preached hope the other one has preached breaking up the establishment, but basically many of the people that voted for the first then turn around and voted for the second.
0: Well, so can I tell you? Can I tell you why I? So, for example, that happened to me. I, I didn't vote for a Trump the first time, but I, I, I'm I'm I, I'm more of a fan of Trump than I am of the left because of the left's. I know that Biden isn't a socialist. I know that he's more of of, of a center. Democrat, but the mere fact that he's willing to put up with socialist ideals just to get elected is a major turnoff for me. Um, I would rather vote for someone like Trump, but again, I'm not completely happy with my vote for Trump, and that completely—that is a complete, you know, separation from how I felt about Obama. I loved voting for Obama both times. I was very enthusiastic, and I felt the hope and the change. But where I feel a lot of the American people, you know, I've 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 been privileged to kind of not have to experience this myself. But a lot of the American people felt that they got betrayed in the 2008 financial crisis when Obama, I think he did a great job in the economy, kind of putting the economy back together. But a lot of people felt betrayed where Wall Street, Wall Street basically got bailed out by Main Street right and and you saw the wealth inequality and supposedly obama was a democrat you saw the wealth inequality increase under obama's reign where it should have decreased because of the 2008 financial crisis and a lot of people feel the same way and i think that i think that that was an ultimate betrayal by not not i wouldn't say just obama i would say it was an ultimate betrayal by the establishment democratic party because it was a democrats the Democrat always runs as, as the party of the people. Like, it, it, it's, the, it's a Democrat that would traditionally put, you know, a banker in jail, but now it's Trump saying, you know, the, 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 now it's Trump calling out the military establishment. Now it's Trump calling out the banks. Now it's Trump calling out the pharmaceutical industry, right? And, and that completely puts everything on its head. And, that, and that's why you're seeing so many people that would not normally be Republicans, right? A lot of us don't agree with a lot of pro- traditionally establishment Republican views all of a sudden like Trump.
1: Well, let me put your arguments uh, to test and upside down. I'm not going to talk to you from a two-party point, a system point of view. Historically speaking, the old axioms were that, you know, in the Primaries, the candidates will pivot to the extreme right, to the extreme left, and then on the election, they will pivot to the center. Um, Presidential historians have argued, uh, I think to a large degree, rightly so, that uh, presidents that have governed from the middle uh, have been the most effective presidents in American history and the the ones considered.
0: uh, So you don't think that any Wall Street banker should have gone to jail?
1: Yes, but let me just make the point in, in the context and then I'll get to, to your arguments. So that these the presidents have gone from the middle of the ones that uh, were more effective uh, and are most respected, historically speaking. So you can name among those uh, Ronald Reagan, uh, which came from the right, or uh, Bill Clinton that came from the left, as highly effective presidents because they were able to bring the two sides and, and reach compromises. Uh, but... Why is it that then suddenly we got someone like President Obama elected and then in in response uh, someone like President Trump elected? I would argue that it's because the middle of the road uh, stopped being an answer for a large segment of the US population. Why so? Because the two premises being preached by each party are false. Therefore, if the two premises or the, the, the root of the arguments are false, the middle, which is a compromise between the two false premises, is also false. So you come with uh, individuals that come and one offer change and hope and uh, the current president offer to break the establishment. I would argue some that I think that uh, the, the country per se will not be satisfied either Uh, if they weren't with Obama, maybe they will not be with the current president because I still continue to believe that the fundamental needs of the American people, which are much more basic than just pure politics, okay? As I said, they are in the education side, they are in the uh, employment side, in the healthcare side, in the retirement side, uh, are not being dealt with effectively. Uh, I believe that uh, the two-party system is under threat, and uh, the loser of this election may break into two or may face the biggest threat of being broken into two ever in American history. Because we seem at the moment to have four different political views in the country with a, like a straitjacket, forcing them into be two parties. If, you, if we had four parties running right now and four candidates, you will be perhaps seeing coalitions, like you see in Europe, where the minority side is key for the larger side to govern. Therefore, their agenda is heard and taken care of. So, we are approaching a boiling point, and it is probable that that, that our system will evolve from where it is now. But one thing I know, the current two systems are not representing the needs of the people. we can talk in a different discussion about what I call false premises. And to give you an example, if the uh, steel workers, coal miner workers, and the automobile industry workers that voted for Obama and then changed for President Trump, have continued to be given a false premise of the, not the root of their problem and their, and their the solution, but false promises they will continue to be happy with, uh, you know, unhappy with the, the the one that made the first made the promise to them, and then the one that followed. Why? Because if if you're facing with large swaths of the American industrial apparatus that basically have become obsolete, this is a service-oriented economy. This economy that basically more and more is knowledge-based, and we cannot compete due to our high standards of living our high revenues, our high income per capita, we cannot compete in manufacturing certain things here, uh, then you cannot come and promise uh, people things that you cannot deliver to them. Because basically that's not going to happen. So I say that there's a large number of voters that are being promised in the last 10, 12 years, things that cannot happen. So the solutions don't seem to be coming out of the current two political Party system. Are you not optimistic
0: about? Um, because you know, I, I I'm not a fan of the current president's rhetoric, and I'm not a fan of the 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 vision that he calls that 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 he causes, especially on the left. Um, but I am a fan of him being the first president in in, in modern American history to not be for wars and to actually publicly. You know go out and you know not only call out the military industrial complex which has caused most of the wars in this country but has basically caused a, a giant rupture in the republican establishment
1: i believe that president trump has resonated with a solid segment of the u.s population which should be a a lesson for everyone that there is a large number of people that before he came along, felt they did they were not being heard, they were not being listened to, they were not being represented properly, and and he came and he has actually captured their uh, uh, sympathy, their 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 following, and and they want more of him, they 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 want to hear what he says, what he what what he plans, what he has in mind. Let me tell you, my questioning is not about him individually, but. Is him and all the others that preceded them. American society, the most prosperous, most successful society ever created by men in human history, is not evolving enough to deal with the issues of lack of social mobility, growing inequality, and then the fundamental needs of society, which basically have to do with, we just said it, right? Education, healthcare. You have to have the possibility to work, and if if you cannot work and you're unemployed, then you need to be supported while you get back on your on your feet, and then retirement. Those things the society has failed to address and solve them without this, in, you know, in uh, uh, duality that if you're not with me, then you're against me, and you're a socialist. No, sir capitalism needs to be revisited
0: okay so it needs to be revisited without the extreme end of the left but it needs to kind of look at you know look at some of the components of of capitalism i'm going to give a great real life example milton friedman kind of walking back his statements when in the 1970s and in the 1980s, there was a lot of environmental disasters caused by chemical companies and oil companies. So he had to walk back. And Milton Friedman, for anybody that doesn't know, he's he's ultra right on the economic scale, right? He believes that free markets will fix everything, but he had to walk back and he had to say, you know what, we actually need some government regulation to kind of limit the environmental disaster that a lot of these companies are doing, right? So. So is, is that what you mean? It needs to be revisited. It needs to be rethought.
1: Correct. I think that until this uh, large swat of the U.S. population, both on the right and the left, see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of their government and the people representing them working or coming out with real tangible solutions to those basic needs, you're going to continue seeing these uh, potential clash and boiling point we are facing now
0: awesome okay so okay so we'll leave it at that we're running out of time for today's podcast but we'll leave it at that in part two we're going to read we're not only going to revisit the subject but we're also going to talk about the corruption of not only the educational system in the u.s but a lot of institutions whether that is from government programs or whether that is from, you know, the the increase of the increased use of the internet, you know, we'll we'll leave it to that conversation. Anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening. And don't forget to like and subscribe, tune into the next one.